0: Blob Talk Radio.
1: Tonight's show is sponsored by Mayor Johnson. With every child, there is a solution. Explore a variety of educational solutions at mayorjohnson.com while saving 20% by using promo code SOLUTIONS20 at checkout. That's mayorjohnson.com, your education super source.
0: Blob Talk Radio.
1: Dynavox, Mayor Johnson, your special education super source, is celebrating Autism Awareness Month by giving away a new iPad with nine PCS apps, a copy of Boardmaker Studio, and several other prizes. To enter to win, please go to mayorjohnson.com. That's mayor-johnson.com. And good evening. Welcome to the Coffee Clatch. I'm Marianne Russo. It has been an honor to bring you incredible guests for Autism Awareness Month, and who better to finish off the month than Dr. Temple Grandin. She's making her fifth appearance with us, and she will be discussing her newest book, Different Not Less. And tonight we not only have Dr. Grandin, but we have two incredible guest hosts, um, Diane Kennedy and Rebecca Banks, the co-authors of Bright Not Broken. And again, I wanted to thank Dynavox for supporting us this month and encourage you to go to their website. And now let me introduce Diane Kennedy, Rebecca Banks, and Dr. Temple Grandin. Well, it's great to be here.
0: Wonderful to be here. And we would like to say that um, we're just so thankful to Mary Ann for having us on again and also for the opportunity that um, coming up in future weeks we will be hosting the Bright Not Broken radio show right here on the Coffee Clatch along uh, with Mary and we've got some wonderful projects coming up and we too are so excited about having Temple on today and uh, Becky and I have both been uh, familiarizing ourselves with this brand new book we're just so excited about it it goes in line with so many of the points Temple that we have shared with you for some time and I'm gonna let Becky take it from here as she um talks about um everything that um that you try to outline in this book.
2: Yeah and that that's and that's different not less that's the title of the book.
3: Right. 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 And we're just I just want to give our listeners an overview first example, to kind of introduce them to what you do in this book, in your new book, Different Not Less. Um What you've done, I think, is present a personal success story of 14 unique individuals that show the extraordinary potential of everyone on the autism spectrum. And it says on um, the website where your publisher's website, Future Horizons, that one of your primary missions is to help people with autism, Asperger's syndrome, and ADHD tap into their hidden talents. And so that you chose these contributors from a wide variety of skill sets to show how um each individual has in their own lives succeeded in their vocation in their relationship and and ultimately in their lives, um how did you go about choosing the people for this book, different not less?
2: What we did is put a notice out on the website that we'd take entries, and the uh, people that wanted to enter into it were sent um, some paperwork uh, telling them to you know divide their chapter up into like childhood. Early jobs, school experiences, you know, relationship experiences, and we had about twenty-five, twenty-six entries, and uh, I picked half of them, and I deliberately picked a wide variety of people, ranging from a tour guide uh, to a doctor and a, and a nurse anesthesiologist. Uh, there are a few. There's two people that are in the tech industry. I deliberately did not fill. My book, Different, Not Less, up with technical people. You know, I want to make it very clear that not everybody on the spectrum is a technical person because you have the visual thinkers like me. They do art and design things. You have the mathematical types. They're the um, techies. And then you've got the word types. And the the lady that's the tour guide, um, she's a lover of history. And... um, she finally uh, got a job she really liked uh being a tour guide at a history museum and she had to learn how to how to keep her job i uh, I think this book's going to be useful to people the people on the spectrum to show them that yes, I can succeed and the different stories were not easy. these people had a you know tough road they had to they had to work really hard to achieve the things that they achieved, but they did achieve them. And another reason for doing this book was uh, there are a lot of younger people with autism or Asperger's that just think they just sort of, you know, kind of discouraged and don't think they can go anywhere. And I wanted to show them that, yes, they definitely can uh, go somewhere, but they're going to have to work hard at it. And that was the whole point of doing different, not less. Also, to be included in the book, they had to have been self-supporting all their lives and have not collected any Social Security. And another interesting thing, uh, they all had childhood jobs. They had things like paper routes where they learned how to work. And some of these people came from families with very modest financial means. You know, at least a third of them came from a very uh, low-income background, but they still were able to make it.
0: Right. I think it's interesting, Temple, the the diversity that you, that you have put in there. And we've got some questions coming up to really um, uh delve into that as well, a really curious question that we have as well about um, the the side that we see sometimes and we don't see from the male versus a female with um, with different things on the spectrum. But the first question that I'd like to ask you is a recent article just came out and we've been talking about this um, about the autism surge, the CDC that released their shocking report about the huge numbers. And I noticed in the article that you said something that we absolutely agree with you, that um, that the question was Have the um, as the numbers of autism have increased on the mild side of things, um, it, is that um, something that is a true increase? And your comment was you don't think so, you think they've always been there. Can you tell us more uh, about that?
2: A big portion of them have always been there. Uh, in the introduction to Different, Not Less, I, um, I discussed uh, friends I had in college that I know would be diagnosed on the spectrum today, and they were my best friends, and we and they kind of seek, we seeked each other out. Uh, but I think there is some severe autism that has increased because there's concerns about environmental contaminants. I've been reading scary things now about pesticides affecting bees, Pesticides affecting bull bull fertility, and these Mm -hmm. things might interact with susceptible genetics. But I would, on the high end of the spectrum, I would say probably 75 or 80 percent of the increase is simply increased detection. People that before used to be called geeks and nerds now are getting a a diagnosis. And for the people in different, not less, uh, most of these got their diagnoses later in life because they were having relationship problems and marital problems, and it actually gave them a lot of insight. But the one lady in there, that was a computer person, and she got diagnosed after her dad died, and she was just devastated by the label. She didn't want to think of herself as being damaged. Mm-hmm. But the ones that, where it helped them with their marital lives, it was definitely a relief to, to find out why they were the way they were.
0: Right, and and we would totally agree with the, with the thought of you know there's a lot of people and my son included, which was part of of my uh, input into bright not broken is when he said to me I'm really tired of feeling like I, I'm broken I'm not broken I just need some guidance and help to get to the part of me that I know is exceptional, and I thought that was an a, just an incredible insight because. Um, you know, it is a fear. It's it's the labeling of if I have this, then I must be broken. Instead of focusing on what you you know what you're exceptional at.
2: Well, I mean, when you look at people out in Silicon Valley, I mean, half of Silicon Valley's got some degree of autism. I mean, Steve Jobs would definitely be diagnosed on the spectrum. Einstein didn't talk until age three. A lot of school systems would put him on the spectrum. The live Aspies out there, I'm not going to mention any live ones. I only talk about the dead ones, but. Uh, <laughs> Because alive ones might get angry about right. it um, right um but it you see the thing is the kind of social communication disorder problem it's a continuous trait in fact, in the d m s five they're going to take Asperger out and change it to social communication disorder and say that it's not autism, well, scientifically, that's actually rubbish um you well. know and they'll say to have autism. You have to have social communication plus repetitive uh, behavior and fixated interests. And I think some Mm of this um, changing the DSM diagnostic criteria is for funding reasons. They want to have less people on the autism spectrum. Which brings me to
3: a question that that I had wanted to ask you in terms of DSM-5 and social communication disorder. If we're going to pull the funding for these therapies for the kids because they have a diagnosis, that as of right now, insurance does not cover therapies for. How do you think that's going to impact the higher functioning individuals? Do you think this is going to leave them kind of in the same place that the individuals in your book are, where they were cast about and they had to find their own way,
2: rather well, than the,
3: having a lot of the people in,
2: in a lot of the people in different, not less. Um, uh, the you know there some of them are my age. So when they were young, nobody knew anything about autism. See, one advantage you have today is there's so many good books available. There's all of Tony Atwood's stuff. I, I think different lot less is going to be helpful. There's a lot of very good books available. There's information on the Internet available, which just wasn't available before. And I think people need to realize that this social communication disorder, Asperger's, high-functioning autism, whatever you want to call it, it it's, it's a behavioral profile. You know, they can't do a blood test and say that you've got autism. And mm-hmm. and you can read, and and I've had people come up to me in the airport. I have had a couple of wives come up to me at the airport, and they said, thinking in pictures, that's one of my earlier books, you just saved my marriage because now I understand my engineer husband, and all they had done is read the book. You know, and that can give insight. But, these, but you know, many of the people in different, not less, are 50 and 60. So when they were kids, uh, there was... None of the much, you know, materials didn't come available until the late 80s and the early 90s. You know, that's when things really started to get really readily available. So, do you
3: think with the proposed changes then that we're going to put parents in the position of having to find their own answers rather than being able? Well, I think relax. what we'll
2: probably we'll do when social communication disorder gets on the to be um, DMS officially, we are going to put it on the subtitle of the book, and it's going to say Inspiring Stories of Achievement and Successful Employment from Adults with Autism, Asperger's, ADHD, and Social Communication Disorder. <laughs> we'll just stick it there right there are. on the front of the book,
3: right.
2: on the front of the different, not less, because it's the same thing.
3: Exactly, autism <laughs> is defined as a social communication well, disorder. That's like just, you said. that's just it. And oftentimes, with a higher functioning population, the repetitive behaviors and the in, the specialized interests, um, the repetitive behaviors are are often manifest in thought patterns, not necessarily obvious behavior patterns. Which is why well, you a can lot have of obsessive mess,
2: yeah, obsessive kind of uh, thoughts.
3: Right, exactly, which makes it hard for people to get diagnosed when they're not seeing the repetitive behaviors that people associate with. Well, there's with some est- estimates disorder.
2: that, you know, a lot of people, you know, quite a few of the Asperger's are going to fall into the social communication. But when mm-hmm. it comes to doing therapy with them, it's the same. But one of the things that's important in the therapy is the insight. I found that for myself, the things that helped me the most was reading other people's first-person reports. That was mm-hmm. very, very helpful to me. And 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 then all the a lot of the research about how the brain works. Those were the things that I found helpful, and this is one of the reasons why I'm so interested in the brain research. And, uh, and I've had a chance to get my brain scanned on the most state-of-the-art scanner in the world at the University of Pittsburgh. It was very, very interesting. They found out why my language learning was <laughs> messed up. Wow.
3: That's Wonderful. They found the visual part was really sick.
2: <laughs> no, it was like, I mean, this scanner is, it, the Defense Department that had paid for this scanner to use on veterans to look at head injuries, and there's no mm. other scanner like it. It can track all the white matter circuits. But I want to tell people, you don't need to be running out and trying to do this stuff. First of all, it's not in a hospital. And second of all, everything that they have found inside my brain showed up clinically, and what that means is Okay, language problems showed up, the fact I have more associative thinking, a big visual circuit, um, a a, a strange auditory circuit. My fear center was bigger. Well, I had horrible panic attacks all through my 20s until I took antidepressants. Mm -hmm. I mean, the symptoms show up clinically. But showing up on the brain scan also showed up clinically in my behavior and how I felt and how I did my thinking. I've got a defect in the parietal area, and that explains why I can't multitask and my mathematics is so messed up.
3: Well, let me ask you something, back to your book for a minute, because you're talking about research, and so much of autism research for years focused on males, and you've profiled a number of women in your book. Did you discover that their experiences differed markedly from the
2: experiences of men? Or One of the things that we've found is that more women seem to write up, send in entries. And one of the problems I had when we were picking out the people for different, not less, is I had to make sure I had enough men.
0: Hmm.
2: You know, I had... they. When you look at some of the books that have come out, you know, a lot of girls write up books, and and the guys, you know, guys write up books too, but we had... um, I don't. Know, I just remember going through the stuff, and I had lots of girls, and I had to make sure I had enough men in the book. You know, I wanted to really represent, uh, you know, represent uh, everybody, ranging from low-level jobs to very high-level jobs. The visual thinkers. Uh, the uh, Charlie, the tour guide, uh, is a word thinker. She loves history, and I put her first because I wanted to put somebody first that was definitely not like me and was not a tech, a techie. Right. I want to get well, that wide, uh, wide variety and different, not less.
3: Well, and I love Charlie's story where she says that it was the need to survive that led her to discover and develop social abilities that few autistic people really get to develop, the public speaking, how to modulate her voice, um, awareness of what her audience needed while she was taking them on these tours, because essentially at first she would bore them to tears and she yeah. was at risk of losing her job. Yeah, that's right. And so I really enjoyed um, the way that she she describes having to
2: well, learn. And you learn, to develop you learn these public skills. speaking by, by doing it. And I can remember when I was getting ready to do my very, very first uh, paper at the American Society for Agricultural Engineers on cattle handling equipment, and I practiced my speech to Tom. He was an old engineer at a feedlot construction company I was working at. And Tom gave me some very good counsel. He says, you're way too critical. You're just criticizing the existing equipment too much. You can't be so critical. And I took his advice and modified my talk. And, you know, coaching. You know, I had I had people that coached me. And you get better with doing things. Another thing I've done in Different Not Less If you can page through the book, and there's lots of subheading. And mm-hmm. so you can kinda of page through the book if you're interested in employment, you can page through the book and find subheadings about that. If you're interested in relationships, you can flip through the book and just read the parts about relationships or the parts about school or the parts about bullying. And that was a huge problem for a lot of the people. Yes. And how yes. they dealt with it. And 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 I spent a lot of time putting those subtitles in. Also wanna thank thank Teresa Corey, you know, for working on the editing. You know, we a lot of the material required a lot of organization.
3: Mm-hmm. And then
2: once we got it organized, I, went, I spent uh, hours and hours and hours reading it very carefully and putting in these subtitles so that if you're interested in special interests, you can go through there and pick out the parts about people's special interests. And you can, um, you know, kind of page through it and just read the stuff you want to read.
0: Something I as we talk about Temple, the difference here and some of the differences between males and females that I want to point out and also pointed out is one of just one of the most fantastic resources about you and that's your movie uh, where Claire Danes portrayed you, um, Temple Grandin in the movie. Oh, and she did a I think great job. It, She did, and I think I think one of the scenes that came to my mind when we, we were discussing this was, and again it's part of being bullied was when you were being bullied because you were a female and that just wasn't accepted at that time in that field. And especially um, to give you any credit for having the expertise in the technical field. Um, Can you talk about that? um, Well, another thing,
2: when I was in my twenties, a lot of people thought I was kind of mentally retarded and that I was kind of stupid and mm-hmm. I had a huge urge. I wanted to prove to people I wasn't stupid. So I went to every feed yard in Arizona, and I worked cattle so I could um, learn how to, how to design the facilities. I did not learn that stuff overnight. That required a lot of work. That's why my employment book is called Developing Talents, because you've got to work on, on developing things. Uh, you know, if you're good at art, you're going to have to work on it. You know, uh, Charlie had to work really hard to learn how to become a good tour guide and keep her job. You know, unfortunately, she had some people that, that coached her instead of just having her get fired. You know, I had right. people that coached me. I had problems at the Arizona Fire Ranchman, and we had a new boss, and he was going to get rid of me. And Jackie, the nice graphics lady, said, oh, this new boss, Jim, I think he's going to get rid of you. we got to get a portfolio together of every article that you've ever written and paste it in a scrapbook and show it to Jim, and we did that. And he was just flabbergasted that I wrote so many good articles, so then he kept me instead of firing me but I had, to, I had to keep my job by showing my work and show them all the good articles I'd written for the magazine. And, and one thing... Part, I, uh,
3: excuse me, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Diane.
2: Right.
0: Go, oh, go ahead, Becky. Yeah, I was just adding, that's all part of the developing, and I know um, that's that's wonderful advice, Temple. I think it's really important because it is a process. Go ahead, Becky.
3: And one thing that I noticed in the stories that, is that you include in different, not less, is, how many individuals had someone step in and mentor them, or teach them how to dress, teach them how to acquire the job skills, warn them when a boss was angry? Because these are social vocational I had cues. people that
2: did the same thing with me, right? And that you know, seems like to the be a universal
3: experience.
2: Yep, I had you know I had the same thing, and there were people that. People that mentored me. And and right. that that was really helpful to me. But it's a you know, and it's a hard word. People always look for a single magic breakthrough. There is no single magic breakthrough. It's sort of a long, hard slog. And and I uh, you know, it took me ten years to really develop my business. You know, and it mm. took me three years just to learn it enough so I could design good stuff.
0: I love to hear you say that Temple, because so many parents and who who come to us and sometimes you know in our hurried school system where teachers are wanting so badly to help these children, but they they go to a training because they want you know five tips how to make it all better, and Although those tips are positive and they're helpful, I think it is very important that we remind people we know from our own experience as parents it's a it's a life process. And well, that's is. absolutely
2: right, and I'm really concerned that a lot of young Asperger's, you know, are not are not getting employed, and almost everybody in the book had, you know, had childhood jobs, paper routes, selling candy, uh, you know, those things teach important social skills. I was just up at the uh, Liberty Science Museum in Newark, and they gave me an award for, you know, helping awareness in science, and that was a total geek techie event. And uh, they have a program there where they have junior docents when kids get to be uh, 14 and they get all the little math geniuses and they let them, um, you know, be tour guides in the museum. And they tell me that when they first come in, they're really shy and they have to coach them and then they learn how to be really good tour guides and tell people about all the mathematical stuff they've got in the in the museum. See, but that's the kind of experiences that teenagers need to be getting. One thing you say... Um...
3: In this article, on where you're talking about the surge in autism, is that the problem with some of the young people on the spectrum is that parents are reluctant to push them out of their comfort zone, yes. and eventually they end up unemployable. So, um, what do you What do you mean by parents? Um,
2: what kind of comfort zone? What you have are you to do is you have about? to stretch them. Let's just give some examples with me. When I was 13, Mother found a freelance seamstress that worked out of her her home and had me uh, do a little job for her, originally as a volunteer, and the seamstress liked my work so much that she started paying me, and I hand-hemmed dresses and took apart garments. Then I was 15, and I had the opportunity to go to the ranch, and I was really scared to go. Mother wasn't going to let me not go. She gave me a choice, but it basically was one week or all summer. Once I got out there, I loved it. But if I hadn't gone to the ranch, I I hate to think of, you know, where I would have gone. You always got to stretch. No surprises. But I'm seeing too many uh, younger people on the spectrum today that don't know basic stuff like shopping, how to order food at McDonald's. I mean, uh, just the most basic thing, bank accounts, things like that. Uh, These were all things that were taught to me. You know, Mother used to have dinner parties, and I'd put on my little church dress and serve hors d'oeuvres, and I had to shake hands with all the guests and be really super polite. And when I look back on that, that was really good training. I mean, those are easy things to do. And they were very, you know, and I had to sit through church whether I liked it or not.
0: I would agree with you, Temple, as I, I think of my own experiences and those that I've heard other parents talk about. I know with my son... Sometimes some of the things that he said he would never, ever do, actually, with um, with all of my children, that they said they would never do, you know, by some encouraging and sometimes just some downright sternness to say, well, until you've tried it, then you can tell me that you don't like it. I, I found some of their best successes and best memories have come from from those moments, and you've I think got that's to wonderful. to
2: stress them, and, and, and in the movie, there's a scene in the HBO movie, which incidentally you can buy on Amazon or at TempleGrandin.com, Uh, where my boss slams down a can of deodorant and says, you stink, use it. And that actually happened. In fact, I showed Mick Jackson, the director, exactly how to slam that deodorant down. And at the time, he was real stern about it. And at the time, I was very upset. His secretary took me out, and we went shopping. That actually happened. And uh, I was very upset about the whole thing. But now I look back on it, and I thank him. I thank him, thank him, thank him for doing this. And he was stern about it.
3: Absolutely, absolutely. Do you think some of the parents' reluctance also comes from um, the fact that when children are pushed out of their comfort zone, they tend to have meltdowns? There are a lot of times where
2: children don't don't do it. The trick is you do not push it to that point. I talk about stretching. No surprises. The ranch, going to the ranch was not a surprise. You don't do that. Everything is known up front. It's stretching, you know. Like, let's say I'd gotten to do it, the sewing job and I'd hated it. Well, she wouldn't have made me do it. She probably would have made me do it like maybe three or four times, and then she would have let me get out of it. Uh, they she also they also got me into a childhood boating program that was very badly run, and I did get out of that because the, my the little sailboats and almost, uh, uh, you know, they weren't watching me right, and I almost got blown out to sea, and somebody had to rescue me. And now was the end of that program, it was a pretty bad program and and uh I, I did get out of that but i but in that program, I had to go out and I had to fight it would have worked if it had been better organized. The counselor was real young, and it just was real poorly organized but if you, if you don't stretch these kids, they're not going to develop. you've got to push just slightly outside the comfort zone. Otherwise, uh, they don't they don't develop. And I'm seeing too many kids that are on Social Security and they're playing video games. They're programming video mm-hmm. games. I'd be real happy about that. Or making phone apps. Oh, I saw a great phone app today on Google Earth. We were we were flying around on Google Earth and looking at all meatpacking plants where uh, I had equipment <laughs> I have designed. And you could zoom in and you could see all the all the equipment up on the roof. <laughs> that was really fun but you know, that, people, was, that I, was
3: a team that was a young person a young adult who had designed that or
2: uh no i no they, oh. there are some apps that young adults have have designed but we need to be getting teenagers into things there's some very good educational stuff on the internet that's free one of the things is Udacity. that's simply audacity without the u that's free programming classes and computer science classes from stanford this is all techie stuff there's khan academy k-h-a-n like Genghis khan academy khan academy (laughs) free science and math lessons Uh, uh, google uh, sketchup has got all kinds of fantastic programs for kids type google sketchup that's a 3d drawing program there's lots of wonderful things free classes at stanford type that in Wolfram Mathematica, if you love mathematics, that's a wonderful oh, I mathematics. Love
3: Wolfram. That is amazing. Wolfram Mathematica
2: is wonderful. There's a lot of good free stuff on the Internet. There's a lot of rubbish on the Internet, but there's also some wonderful stuff on the Internet.
3: Well, one um, um, simple... Trend. Oh, go ahead. No, I was getting ready to say that I've been involved in the Universal Design for Learning program through uh, my public school system I teach in, and... Um, we 've been exploring using technology, and how it 's going to flip the paradigm of education and learning because essentially it's it's what you say, Temple, we all need to learn to our individual interests and That's and it. what we are gifted and talented in, which is what we bring about too. We talk about the importance of discovering our purpose and bright not broken and that that several of the programs that you 're talking about, you can go out and. Yeah, essentially a free college education. Exactly. You don't get the degree with it.
2: Yeah, you know what? You uh, will get with that Udacity thing. You actually do get a certificate. And uh, there's going to be techies on the other end of that thing that troll through all the students that are on that. And I think a headhunter will come out of that and offer some of them jobs. You know, it. it, uh, Yeah. You do really well on that Udacity thing. you know, there'll be compute tech companies looking for smart kids out there. You know, it's sort of like with a computer. It's like you got the ruby slippers right there in that computer, and you don't know you have them. Uh, one thing that kind of bothers me is the amount of people that don't think, they'll look things up on Google. I get mm-hmm. questions that I'm going, Well, oh, couldn't you have looked colleges up on Google before <laughs> you even called me? Right. You know, I. it's right there. Use it. I mean, ha, you you just type it in the search box. It's nothing to learn how to use. <laughs> my my
0: son, Temple, and as you were talking about, sometimes um, I, I love the idea of a headhunter looking – for people in a non-traditional kind of educational way because my son, who is in college but continues to struggle, and, of course, because you've got to get through all that basic stuff before you really get to the things that mean something to to your interest. And he was telling me he's he's on a kick now, which I'm excited about, that has to do with engineering and engines. And Good. and he's looking at, um, you know, he thinks there's a way to design something new. And, and he said that's exactly what he did. He was listing for me all the research he had done to figure out the different things have been developed, and he said, you know, not all of them had a four-year college degree. And well, I, there's I, a lot was, of
2: great careers on the two-year college degree. Oh,
3: yeah, uh, right. Uh,
2: yeah. People need to look at what's in their community college. I mean, like, there's a shortage now of certified welders, a shortage of diesel mechanics. I mean, you know, if you love engines, uh, you can have a job as a diesel mechanic for life. They're not going to outsource that one
0: right, and I you know on the on the topic of giftedness and autism, that connection that we do a lot with and and of course that's you know what led us to share so much in common temple about the word that seems to be new and i'd like to help define that again for someone who may be listening who hasn't heard it that's the twice exceptional term and when we talk about that in terms of autism you know our research led us to find that from oliver sacks back when he featured you in an anthropologist on mars and and we did a lot of digging asperger himself compared so many traits of autism to people with giftedness
2: and if you could
0: Speak on that a little bit about how autism and giftedness are not that strange to each other. Well,
2: I think they're I think they're related because you disconnect a few social circuits, maybe you got extra brain circuits uh, devoted to, you know, doing math things. Uh, see the back it was the brain grows the back of the brain a lot of that stuff grows earlier, and I think I'm, I've kind of say this kind of jokingly, but I think it may actually be true. You take out some social circuits, then you make circuits for doing you know, intellectual giftedness. You know, I think there's a big variation in brain development. And I think you can build a brain to either be more cognitive or thinking or build a brain to be more emotional. And there's a wide range that's just normal variation. When does Asperger's or social communication disorder just become normal variation in somebody that's smart that's just, you know, not that social? It, the, the genetics is exceedingly complicated. It's little, tiny. Single copy number variations in code, little tiny reversals of code, and hundreds and hundreds of brain development genes. It's an incredibly complicated genetics. That's a combination of inherited genetics and what's called de novo. That means spontaneous uh, mutations of like single little reversals of, of genetic code. You know, it's a single nucleotide pair.
3: Absolutely. Oh, I'm sorry. I was, I was going to, to talk too about the gifted and so often children with Asperger's and the giftedness exhibit behavioral problems that are yes. misperceived in the classroom and that I think Charlie um the first woman the whole, the tour guide talks about how her experiences in school began and she was perceived as a behavioral problem she
2: was seen as gifted
3: a lot of the individuals in your book are, are gifted
2: well, Clearly that's right. The other thing that, that, that's um, got a lot, a lot of the people in different, not less, uh, have sensory issues. And I've got, you know, subtitles there. If you want to just look through sensory issues, uh, you want one. Stephen Shore talks about a sensory mm-hmm. nightmare at an accounting firm. Um, it's, it's uh, you know, the fluorescent lights may bother you, or you can't stand working in an open cubicle because you need a quiet place to work, or you can't stand too much noise, you know, like a noisy sports bar would just be sensory overload. And one area where there needs to be a lot of research done on treatments is sensory problems. I don't know why they're so slow on the DSM on not putting sensory processing disorder in the DSM because it's a really real problem, and it can be extremely debilitating to have extreme sound sensitivity or, or sensitivity to flickering of fluorescent lights.
0: Dr Lorna Wing who we as you know we have used a lot of her work and she was one of the early pioneers in autism especially helping us understand the social communication aspects but in recent years some of her colleagues have done a lot of study out of Wales and uh London they've they've done a lot about sensory and I think you're right I think more of that research needs to come forward and hopefully it will expand as um, As more people' yeah, talking
2: about see one of the problems with doing sensory studies in autism or asperger's is if you take twenty people labeled high functioning autistic or asperger's and you do some sensory treatment, like maybe the colored lenses, they might work on only three or four people, and then you say well it doesn 't work because it didn't work on the other seven or eight of them or or you do something for sound sensitivity. Well, maybe only half the people have sound sensitivity. See, the problem is is the sensory issues are extremely variable, and we need to be assigning subjects to experimental treatments based on what exactly their sensory problem is. And you can have these sensory problems with autism. You can have them with dyslexic. You can have them with nonverbal learning disorder. You can have them with Asperger's. You can have them with ADHD. And you also can have sensory problems with head injuries. You can get some of the same sensory problems. hmm
3: And unfortunately, because each individual is different, they're going to process sensory Di- sensory input differently. And so well, that's that right. If they work for three or four people, they're working for those three or four people. But we're not going to come up with a one-size-fits-all therapy for sensory processing. Well, that's
2: right. Like on the visual thing where some people see the flicker of fluorescent lights and they see the print jiggling on the page, there's some very simple things you can try. Try printing your homework on pastel paper. Try every different color of light blue, tan, light gray, uh, light lavender. Try different colored glasses, like pink and light blue and and until you find ones where the print doesn't jiggle and It'd be pretty stupid to flunk out of school because you didn't experiment with colored paper and colored glasses, even if it only had had a ten percent or a five percent chance of working. You're talking about something that doesn't even cost anything to try it right
0: absolutely and the risk and the risk and there's is no risk great. which you is, could experiment is something... with
2: the uh, colored background on your computer too
0: right right, right. Temple, we did want to touch on briefly. We noticed that you did add the chapter in the back of. Of different, not less, about the DSM and and the controversies uh, aside from the autism surge. Just like we spoke about forever, and really have made a point about in our in our um, collaboration on Bright Not Broken. That's the medications and what this new DSM will do
2: to unfortunately drive
0: those in a very dangerous way in in the preschool population and in youngsters. If you can just oh, touch on that, way before.
2: way too many powerful antipsychotic drugs being given to five-year-olds. It's absolutely atrocious. And I've talked to some of the really good doctors that are also uh, research scientists. They're horrified about it. They're worried about long-term effects. You know, basically, on little kids, I'd rather try some of the diets first, some omega-3 fish oil supplements, maybe some of the vitamins or the probiotics or something like that. You know, there is a place for medication. Uh, When I got into my teenage years and 20s, I had horrible panic attacks because my fear center is bigger than normal. Now, that's not true for everybody with autism, just some of them. And antidepressant medications really help me. I know a lot of people where a little dose of Zoloft really help them. And if you're interested in medical issues, uh, you can read about them in 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 uh, The Way I See It. That's one of my main autism books, The Way I See It. But it has to be the second edition. The first edition has no medical information. Also, Thinking in Pictures has got some medical information it has to be the 2006 version. And then that's still current. But I'm just horrified at the amount of drugs that are just given out like candy and uh, the atypical antipsychotics, things like Abrolify, Seroquel, and Risperdal. You've got problems with a kid getting really fat, getting diabetes, uh, getting a tardive dyskinesia, which is kind of a Parkinsonian-like nerve-shaking mm-hmm. problem. It, it's just absolutely horrible. And, and And then on the other hand, there is a place for medication, There are some older teenagers and adults with extreme aggression problems where a little bit of Respiridol was used very carefully and conservatively, you know, can really work well. But it's given out to way too many young children, just like Candy, and I'm just horrified.
3: And And don't you also think think that... Oh, I'm sorry. I was getting ready to say, don't you think the doses that they begin them on, you say very conservatively...
2: You want to use the lowest possible doses... The lowest possible doses that will work. In fact, there are some people where respiridol in an extremely low dose. I mean, a quarter of a milligram a day for a grown-up uh, helped on sound sensitivity. Another thing that helps on sound sensitivity is have the child initiate the sound. Like, I was terrified of balloons when I was a kid because I was afraid they'd pop. And so to get over that, the thing to do would be blow a balloon up just a little bit and pop it where it makes no noise. Gradually blow them up bigger where I'd take a pin and pop it and and the, the sounds are better tolerated if the child initiates it. The kid can't stand going in the noisy supermarket. Then you develop some kind of signal that when he's had enough of Walmart, he can give a signal and be taken out before he has a meltdown, then gradually work on trying to tolerate a bit more Walmart. But then there are others that if they want to get serious work done, they're going to have to have a quiet place, and they're going to have to be against the fluorescent lights. Otherwise, too much information just comes flooding in, and they can't filter it out.
0: I think Temple, and going back to the DSM for a moment, that really is where we get the license to to trial and error with these medications. And some of these diagnoses, I know that autism has been, of course, you know, one of the biggest issues, and and we too are concerned because of the of the mild, uh, what's considered mild, but yet very troubling to some people's lives, and and not being able to get a diagnosis in the future is very scary. At the same time, one of our issues, and as you know that we've been so concerned about is the, the ADHD path that leads to oppositional defiant, which is really oh, where bad. a lot of these meds are going. And that these diagnoses, we feel it, it's like, you know, where are they going to go if they're if they're squeezed out of autism? They're going to be shuffled not just in the social communication area, but they could be shuffled over into the new uh, temper dysregulation. I think they've changed that a couple times. But that's a, a high, high suspect for adding these medications.
2: Well. Well, the other thing this thing that saved me was after I had horseback riding taken away for 2 weeks when I was about when I was about 15 I uh, switched from anger to crying. I couldn't control emotions, so I switched emotions. I don't really know how I did it, but that saved my career. And uh, about 2 weeks ago I watched 60 minutes, you know, and they were shutting down the shuttle and laying off all mm-hmm. the people at Cape Canaveral and these people at Cape Canaveral were crying on camera and walking off. Well, that's probably why they were able to keep their jobs, because they cried rather than get mad. They were If they'd been throwing things, they wouldn't have been working for NASA. And so one of the ways to avoid all the drugs is you switch from anger to crying. And I've had parents say to me, well, I don't like it. My teenage boy cries. I go, good. He's not going to have to take any meds. And uh, it's fine for geeks to cry. NASA space scientists cry when the shuttle was canceled. You can go find that 60 Minutes show and look that up. I also watched a NASA space scientist that was my age crying at a career fair uh you know about 6 months ago and he was telling about his career and he was showing us beautiful pictures of the space shuttle and and I uh, I was crying when I saw the picture of the of the 747 with the shuttle on top I yeah. can't even think about that stuff without getting upset I am a geek that's the kind of stuff that makes me very upset
0: uh-huh. And and that's something too, as we talked about gifted the traits of, of giftedness. One of the probably one of the primary hallmark characteristics if you look at the gifted literature is the social injustice and sometimes that can cause the behavior issues or some of the um of the true inability to cope with others is because people with giftedness have such a strong sense of moral justice. And um
2: and I vibe, Go ahead. And, and you get and you get into radical politics. I just heard a sad story about a lady with Asperger's that had a nice job working for a company where she was uh, working doing woodworking, a type of work. And she had the job for four or five years. Really loved the job, but her colleagues just couldn't stand all her talk about radical politics. Boy, that's a subject. It's just better to leave it at home. You don't bring that subject to work. And how do so, you think?
3: Oh, I'm sorry. Go, ahead, go ahead, Diane. No, go ahead, I was going to ask, Temple, don't you think that's something that uh, several of the people in your book had to learn in individuals with autism have to learn that there are there are subjects, there are things that are best kept out of the work environment? Exactly. And and that it's important that, that they find individuals who coach them in those areas.
2: Well, that's just right. Sex, religion, and politics, just better to leave those subjects at home. They're really not welcome at work.
0: And those are some of the... Did, did you have, Temple and I, help me remember, you had the rules, the rules of what you can't do in the in the workplace and the, the seven most important rules of what are not allowed that will get you in trouble. I remember you did a lecture on that.
2: Well, you just have to, you know... Um, you know, politics is one way to make a lot of people mad at you real fast. It's a subject you don't need to talk about at work. You can talk about something like I can remember when all the stuff went on with the hanging chads. You know, it's okay to talk about that from a technical standpoint, but you don't talk about who should have won the election. See, that's that's partisan. Well, you don't get into partisan. That causes trouble real fast. You can talk about how to inspect the hanging chads. That's okay. And what
0: what do you think parents can do, even for young children, to help prepare them with those social challenges? Of I have when to they are... learn
2: by specific example. You've got to get them out in the environment. Let's say I was serving hors d'oeuvres at my mother's dinner party and I talked about something inappropriate, you know, let's say some sex thing, and I talked about it inappropriately. My well, mother would pull me aside and make it very clear to me that that was inappropriate, and I might even possibly have a, you know, a loose TV for doing that. You know, there's certain things you don't talk about at dinner parties.
0: So you have to address something when it happens.
3: When yeah, it you've got to
2: get kids out in the real environment. You can't teach them with a fake store or fake this or that. you got to get them out there and they got to go up to the counter and order the food at McDonald's, or they got to learn how to shop. And then when they make mistakes, you don't scream at them. You pull them aside and you explain what they did wrong, and then you go to another store and do it. And the next day you go to Burger King. You know, it, it's... You've got to teach these things in the real environment, and when social mistakes are made, you just correct them in a real matter-of-fact sort of way. You don't scream and, no; you give the instruction on what you should have said or should have done.
3: And something I found interesting, Temple, is that you're saying that it needs to be repeated. The instruction needs to be repeated in order for it to to take hold. It's well, they also have to learn. It,
2: they they learn everything by specific example. Right. You know, if you want to teach a kid, you know, let's say a younger kid not to run across the street, you've got to teach it in many different places. You've got to have good table manners at home, good table manners at school, good table manners at, you know, at Granny's house, and good table manners when you go to McDonald's. It, it That is a rule, and you enforce that rule in many different places, then it will generalize, and you probably have to teach it in probably five or six different places to make it generalize, because they're bottom-up thinkers.
0: Right. And, be, right, and generalizing doesn't come instinctively to us. Uh, no, it does our, not.
2: No, it does. That's doesn't. right. And and you know all this diagnosis stuff. Um, you know the thing that kind of shocks me is how people get locked into the label. All my parents come and say, "Oh, my kid autistic or is it PDD NOS?" And I'm going, "You know what? It doesn't really matter. Okay, let's just uh, is he working at grade level in school? Does he talk? You know, I mean, I'm trying to find out how well he functions. Okay, now what problems is he having? They get, I'm a, I, I, you know, and I'm a visual thinker, so I I. I don't get hung up on the labels because I see the kid. And it makes me really crazy that when I go to the science museum and I see this little boy there, that's a little math genius, so he did this fabulous math uh, demonstration, and then I go to an autism meeting and I see the same little kid like that, and he's going nowhere. And the same little kid, and that's what makes me really upset. hmm uh-huh. Can you
0: tell us, Temple, as we kind of wind up here and, you know, there are practical things that can be done, but specifically um, can you help parents and and share with our listeners the importance of focusing on special interests to help prepare children, especially with autism, for future employment?
2: Well, yes, because you want to take special interests and broaden them out. I mean, if a child likes trains, well, maybe he could do a, a job involving trains when he grows up. And um, I was at the Science Museum in Newark. They were telling me how much the Asperger kids loved the transportation museum. Well, you, and what you've got to do is take that special interest and broaden it out. In other words, if the kids, little kids, just drawing pictures of trains all the time, well, let's do a picture of the station. Let's do a picture of a place where a train travels to. Let's get an associative link back to um, back to trains you know, broaden out the fixation. My science teacher did that with me. I was all fixated on cattle chutes in my squeezing machine. And my science teacher said to me, well, if you want to find out why it relaxes you, you're going to have to learn how to read scientific journal articles. Well, I didn't even know what a journal article was. It takes me into the library, and we didn't even have a Xerox machine in those days. And I had to read journal articles and write the, the summaries of the journal articles down on recipe cards because there were no copiers it's a lot of work in those days. And he said, that's what real scientists do. And and um, got me, uh, he says, well, you know, you're going to have to study all the science if you want to learn why this pressure has calmed you down. You know, he took my fixation and used it to motivate me to go into a career, a scientific career.
0: And do you think, Temple, those same special interests, and I know we have talked about this, that... Um, that is also a way to teach social skills by putting them in like groups with other
2: exactly kids exactly. We want to get kids in, in. Then when they're in high school, they need to be getting into childhood jobs, and that's you know that's really shown off in different, not less, but get them into things like Boy Scouts, uh, you know, Future Farmers of America, computer club, Google SketchUp, band, school play, school newspaper, all of those sorts of things, and they've got to learn how to work with other kids because. I think scouting's really good, but one kid got Eagle Scout, and he didn't have to do any projects where he had to cooperate with somebody else. Well, that's a big mistake. He should have had to do some projects where he had to cooperate with other people because he got to learn you know, how to do that. And I'm seeing some kids where autism is totally becoming their fixation, and all they can think about is becoming an autism advocate. Now, I think it's fine to be interested in autism, but I'm – it's very difficult to make money as an autism advocate. Uh, well, I have to admit I am making money now, but I was not, you know, the first 15 <laughs> right. years I wasn't making any money on, on, uh, you know, like the first 10 years of autism talks I did, I wasn't making any money on autism talks. I was making money on cattle stuff. Uh, it's okay to be interested in autism. But I get concerned where that's totally their fixation. Now, if they want to turn that fixation into becoming a special education teacher or a psychologist, something that turns into a real job, like Stephen Shore, for example, that's fine. Uh-huh. But we need to work on taking that interest and turning it into a, into a real career. You know, that that's, uh, you know, and it's fine to do autism advocacy. And But I still consider myself a, uh, you know, a professor of animal science first and doing autism advocacy second. And today I was working on revising one of my book chapters for my Livestock Handling and Transport book, and I was just thinking about how much I enjoyed (laughs) looking up journal articles on cows and pigs (laughs) because that's my profession.
3: Well, don't you think, too, Temple, that when – Children are put in with their special interest groups, that's where their pe- their real peer groups come in. Yes, it's not gonna right. be the group in the classroom, it's not gonna be the group in the that's Sunday right. school class. It'll be the ones who have the shared interest.
2: That's right. It'll be and like the Boy Scouts a... or the or the school newspaper or the computer club or art or music or whatever you know, whatever that shared interest is. And, and can they
3: can learn their to... social skills there.
2: And they need and to have a good Hopefully that, you know, whoever the art teacher or the Boy Scout leader is will be good at shaping those and teaching those social skills.
0: That was my question, and being that Becky is an educator as well, Temple, if you could speak for a moment. We we talk a lot about helping parents understand, but teachers, too, are I think sometimes undervalued, definitely undervalued in in the struggles that... Oh, um, my
2: son, teachers, I mean, I had some great teachers. Of course, mother always kept pushing me. She hadn't pushed me, I wouldn't have gone anywhere, but I had some fabulous teachers. I had a great kindergarten teacher, I had a fabulous third grade teacher. She was kind of the uh, pillar of the elementary school. Then I had my science teacher when I was in high school, and in fact, I still visited him on weekends after I was in college. He was very critical in my success. Now, I had some wonderful, wonderful teachers.
0: What advice can you give teachers? If we have teachers that are listening now saying, this is great and I want to help these kids as a teacher. Well, develop
2: develop the strengths, and when a child makes social mistakes, don't scream no, pull him aside and explain what he did wrong. You have to coach him. He's got to learn social skills like being in a play. Don't be subtle. Now, you don't have to be as stern as my boss was when he slammed the deodorant down. But you just got to explain that. Okay, now what you did was really inappropriate, and this is why it was inappropriate. And just be very firm and very matter of fact about how you explain it, because that's the only way they're going to learn social rules. I can remember my boss one. You know, he slammed down the deodorant. He said, "You have a reputation for two things in Arizona. You're totally weird, and you're one of the smartest people in Arizona." That's what he told me. They took me out shopping and took me out shopping and. Um, up had his secretaries get me new clothes.
0: Well, and that's that's a form of coaching in itself, Temple. Oh, that it was is. Yeah.
2: It was, and I've seen, you know, it's fine to be eccentric. It's okay to be eccentric. Okay, if you really want to have a pink streak in your hair, that's okay. Maybe not dye the entire hair pink. You know, being a little eccentric is okay. I'm a bit eccentric. But you just can't be a rude, filthy slob. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think those sound like golden words of wisdom. Absolutely. Yep. There still has to be respect.
2: Well, I, respect. Then I'm hoping that my book, uh, Different Not Less, is going to help um, you know, people with Asperger's and high-functioning autism. Also, I think it's going to be helpful to ADHD. And uh, when they get relabeled social communication disorder, it will probably be even helpful to some of the kids that get labeled oppositional defiant disorder, whatever label they slap on them. And that these people, uh, they had to work hard. It was not an easy road. Yeah, but they all the people in the book and I deliberately picked a wide range from a retail employee in a large store mm-hmm. who's definitely a low-level job tour guide There's this, um, then I've got let me just go look at the index here just going to go through and different not less
3: There's I know Charlie think...
2: Devnett tour guide I have Stephen Shore special education professor Anna uh, Magdalena she's a psychiatric re- rehab person she mm-hmm. works with a uh, you know, it's a, it's a fairly low-level job, but she finds it very, very rewarding. Carla, who works for, uh, she's, a, she's a typical technical person. Mopey, she's a retail employee. Steve, a freelance artist who has got has successful art business. Anita Lesko, a nurse anesthesiologist. I just was on the phone with Anita this morning, and she was telling me she's getting very concerned about a lot of the young Asperger people that are not working, and she's really concerned about that. Wendy Lawson, she's been on the, you know, Steve Shore and Wendy are the two that you might say are well known in the autism field. She's a psychologist. Neil, who's a veterinarian, and veterinarian, and he's from Scotland and the veterinary degree in in Europe is actually a six-year degree. It's like a, well, it's, it's here it's eight years. It's six years in Europe, and then Kim, who's a doctor. And Robert, he, uh, he uh, does computer, uh, you know, web page support, things like that. Lenora, she worked as a dance choreographer, and she works in the autism community. So I've got some people where their profession is in autism. I've got two people that have jobs in the autism field, Sean, who's a real estate executive, and Stuart, who is the creative director of an advertising agency. So there's a we have wide the range here.
0: We had the pleasure of meeting Sean Jackson with you, Temple. And oh, yeah. It was exciting, and we had quite a lengthy discussion with him as well, too, as he discussed a lot of the things that he put in the book about, and, you know, to meet Sean, I mean, he he looked like he was very confident and, and he has been very successful, and I think it is enlightening, and I'm so glad to see that he shared his struggles and, and the point that you point out that although these people have attained a level of success by trial and error in some ways and by learning and like you said developing, it's important to show because that amplifies these hidden deficits that their struggle at times wasn't anything but mild. No, That's no, these we...
2: people, you read these stories uh, and, and every every one of the uh, chapters in there is written by the person themselves. I did uh-huh. not, the only thing in each chapter I wrote was just a little intro thing. But everything else is in their words. Now we did do editing on it, but it was mainly editing to move uh, chunks around, what I call chunk editing. That had to be done with my book, Thinking and Pictures, because, you know, sequencing's a problem. They also wrote their, uh, if you look through this big, huge subheads of relationships, employment, school years, they were sent a form to write their stuff on that started out, because uh, I was trying to, like, pre-edit it, because, you know, us Aspies, we ramble. And I'm really bad at that. And the only way to prevent that is you have to have a uh, an outline. So each person was told to do an introduction, and then I would put subheads in: uh, early years, and then um, and then school years, employment, relationships, and then kind of you know concluding a conclusion. In each chapter, that's the main big headings, and then there's lots of subheads that I put in there, and and I. Uh, So you can kind of go through the book and see how each person, you know, handled different things. And, no, they had to work hard. They had to work hard. And some of them come from very, very modest uh, backgrounds. One of the people is uh, immigrant, uh, you know, they were dirt poor. You know, so, you know, people say, well, they couldn't have made it unless they were really rich. There were some people in here that were definitely not rich. Well, and and one thing
3: that I got through all of this temple is their resilience, and that is something that um, as a teacher and as a parent I strive to teach all the young people I come in touch and in contact with is resilience. And when I think of what you say about parents who are um, hesitant to stretch the children, without the stretching, they're not going to learn the resilience that will enable them
2: to be successful in life. And well, um, that's right. I'm just
3: very grateful for this book. Um, oh, another
2: thing in this, in different, not less, is they also had to write up a, check, a section called mentors. See, this big capitalized heading. So the things that they were sent in entry form and, uh, for them to write their stuff on. But everything is uh, uh, in their words. I didn't write it, the, the people did.
0: And, the example, only thing I, I wrote
2: was a little a little intro and then the chapters at the beginning and the end. One thing I wrote about was get creative about finding jobs. You know, like find the back door, show your portfolio to the right person. That's how I, I got think into things. I
0: think you mentioning the word mentor leads us to just the perfect conclusion for this talk because knowing you, we've we've worked together now since the, the um, forward you wrote to our first book, The ADHD, Autism Connection, and you have been just such a fantastic mentor, both Becky and I. Good. Um, just in encouraging us yeah. to take on some of these hard subjects, I mean that was a tough subject, and and I think um, you know in some ways it is it seems simple, but it's difficult to make uh, people understand that the triumphs and the challenges that come with being twice exceptional, you know, w- that come with being different, not less. And oh wait, a minute, I, my my cell's just a minute. Yeah, we are very thankful for you, and
3: hello. I think.
0: Um, As we wrap up this program, Becky, would you like to add anything and we can let Temple
3: go? I just want to thank her for being here and also um, just encourage everyone to listen on May 16th when we have um, a special guest talking about twice exceptional and the social and emotional needs of gifted children who are indeed bright, not broken, and different, not less. Thank you so much, Temple. We've just been so honored
0: to have you well, today. Well, thank you
2: so much for having me on the program. Sorry about a little inter- interruption from the cell phone.
0: That's okay. <laughs> <sure it's> okay. <laughs> I should have had it
2: turned off. <laughs>
0: Marianne Russo is just a wonderful, wonderful advocate, and we are also very grateful to her and the wonderful um, program she has here on the Coffee Clatch. We thank you so
2: much. Okay, well, great. Well, wonderful to be on the show, and I'm going to have to sign off. Thank you,
0: Temple. You nope. have a good
2: evening. Wait a minute. Okay. Um, okay, well, thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you for being here.
2: Okay, great. All right.